0: Welcome
1: to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Could Europeans have made it to Central North America over a thousand years ago? What is the Macintosh Stone? What do its strange carvings mean?
2: Hello and welcome to the 810th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM. Uh, these rocky questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal and dad, Paul. And uh, today we welcome a new guest on a new subject, and uh, we welcome your calls today. The number is 401-766-1240. That is from anywhere. Um, or you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com or contact us via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.
1: Coming to us via Skype today is Michigan-based travel writer, speaker, researcher, and storyteller Ron Rademacher, author of the Michigan Backroads series of books. Ron's interest in his home state extends to its remote past, and that's the subject of our discussion today.
2: So, Ron Rademacher, welcome to Behind the
0: Paranormal. Hey, good afternoon. Glad to be here. Thank
2: you. Oh well, it's great, great to have you with us here. So. Uh, let's kind of start off with something that that is sort of seeming seemingly simple, but not quite so simple. So, what is the Macintosh stone, and how and when, where and where was it found?
0: Well, the Macintosh stone is a rather small object that was found on the tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula. And I say small, <coughs> excuse me. It's uh, only about twice the size of a dime. And it was discovered in the, the 1980s by a guy by the name of Charlie McIntosh. He was out on the Keweenaw Peninsula picking agates, as people do. He yeah, yes, brought do. it home, yep, yeah, and he brought home a bag of them, didn't pay any attention. And when he began to clean it, the, the agates so he could polish them, he discovered one of them is covered, both sides, with very intricate, tiny little engravings. Okay. Can I
1: ask one uh, one thing, Ron? Uh, you got a bunch of New Englanders here. Uh, wh- wh- where? It, what is that peninsula again, and where is it exactly in, in Michigan?
0: Excellent question. Uh, the Keweenaw Peninsula, and it's our famous place there is Copper Harbor. Most people have heard of that. The upper, the Michigan has two peninsulas. The upper peninsula is on Lake Superior, and the Keweenaw Peninsula extends far out into that lake. And just north of that is uh, Isle Royal. Uh, so this is a, Copper Harbor is a very famous uh, town up there, and the very tip of that peninsula is where this stone was found. Okay, thank you. All right. Interesting.
2: So what did the, what did, what did people think the Macintosh Stone was initially? It, were, were there any sort of speculations, theories, whatnot?
0: There were, yeah, there were some speculations. I first ran across it in a booklet called Coming for Copper, which is, Uh, published by the uh, Ancient Artifact Preservation Society. They had no information about the stone at all, but the fact that it had been found in Michigan and it was said to still exist fascinated me. So the carvings are very enigmatic, and as I began to research it, I've had people tell me that uh, because there's what appears to be a spider on one side and a crescent moon on the other, that it could have been Hopewell, which would be around 600, 800 A.D., Hmm. Native American possibly, but because the carvings are separated in the little frames, they resemble cartouches like you would have in Egyptian, so some people suggested that this was Mediterranean, possibly even Phoenician.
1: Okay uh, before we go any further let me suggest that of course we're on radio uh, for most people <laughs> we just want to suggest that uh, through th- through Ron's courtesy uh, Ron sent a bunch of photos of this uh, object and uh, some relevant uh, illustrations to go with it and uh, if you go to behindtheparanormal.com our show website go to the show archives uh for 2019 there is a there are uh, there are talking points for this show, uh, just hit that, and you'll be able to see the illustration. I know it's a little complicated, but that's uh, that's radio, I'm afraid. But again, the uh, archives um, link on behindtheparanormal.com, the 2019 shows, and this one's right at the top. And there's a link to the um, talking points
0: for this show. So I'm sorry, Ron. Um, no, that's, that's and I'll just uh, throw in there. If uh, if that doesn't work out, just go to michiganbackroads.com. Sure. And on the first on the home page, click on the Paul Eno Images link, and it will take you to a page where I have a short slideshow running of eight images that we'll be talking about. No, they're not images of me, I'll assure everyone. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> not right. me. All right. Well, let's... Uh,
1: <laughs> before we continue, I have a lot of questions of my own. Actually, I'm going I'm to give you one of my own questions before we go to listener questions. Sure. Uh, what method was used, do you think, to carve... Such images, uh, which are actually rather clear, on such a small stone. I mean, what, what? How would that have been done? Do you think?
0: Well, this is one of the great mysteries because as we got into this, and I had high-resolution images taken of this, it, it's we've discovered there are actually images of men carved on this, and they appear to be in a position of uh, celebration or, uh, you know, almost like they're praying. And when you see the stone next to the dime, you realize that we have no clue what was used to carve this. And we have it aged from a number of people as putting the stone at between 200 B.C. and 300 A.D. for an actual age. Mm. That may be, may not be. Other people put it at 1,000 A.D. But nobody has yet come up with uh, any idea of what tool could have been used to carve this because the, the carvings are very intricate and the stone is very small because uh you, you know what
1: I might be getting at here um regardless of one's opinion of uh you know the show ancient aliens and know you love hate relationship with that show uh there is a constant speculation about uh, sophisticated uh tools and and uh, techniques being used to carve various stones that they run into uh, I mean personally why anybody would come a zillion light years to start working with rocks I don't know but uh some speculation may may arise in that direction or maybe has um uh, has has anybody, anybody suggested this <laughs> is not of this earth? I mean, you know.
0: I haven't had anybody suggest that, but the subject does come up because, uh, like some of the other objects that have been found around the world, the, the carvings on this are so fine, uh, and the workmanship is pretty doggone good. Once you know what to look for and you can see what you're looking at, uh, the workmanship on this is fantastic, so oh, the but, subject but has come uh, up.
1: Okay, I'm sorry, uh, Ben, I managed to get the... Um, The picture's up on the page. Very good, Ben. Okay, I'm sorry. Way to go,
0: Ben. Way to go, Ben. Yeah, Yeah, look at that. Yeah, I'll tell you, he's
1: indispensable. I'm sorry, Ron, go ahead.
0: No, that's, so, no, the, uh, and, you know, we always do talk about the, uh, because ancient aliens, uh, you know, regardless of your opinion of some of the things they do, they do bring up questions and they do expose us to objects that we never would have heard of any other way. Mm. So, uh, no, no one has spoken about that, but there's a lot of speculation that this particular stone does have to do with uh, ancient mariners making it to North America, you know, as far back as 1000 A.D. or earlier, and even being connected to the copper culture, which, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of evidence that people were coming here from Europe to mine copper uh, in the Lake Superior area because that has the purest copper on Earth.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, Interesting. I didn't hear that.
0: Huh. Yeah, I didn't either. Yeah, in fact, we will just give you an idea quickly. I'll give you an idea because this does connect. There on the Keweenaw Peninsula and on Isle Royal there are more than 5,000 prehistoric uh, copper pit mines, and we know how old they are because there was copper in these mines sitting on wood when they were rediscovered, and some of that wood has been carbon-dated to 1200 B.C., and, the specu- and we, we have a pretty good idea that as much as a half a million tons of copper was removed from these mines, and it's nowhere in the North American archaeological record. This copper just simply disappeared. Now, the reason that people would come here for that copper is because it's 99% pure. In other words, you don't have to smelt it. All you have to do is get it and begin hammering away at it to begin working it, and you can create armor, you can create swords. Hmm. And so there's a, the idea is that people came here to get this copper over a 2,000-year period and this copper actually fueled the Bronze Age in Europe. Interesting. You know, you, you you can see, it seems hard to
1: believe at first glance that people would get all the way in there, you know, uh, inland uh, to do that. However, when you look at the chain of lakes, as you yourself pointed out in our, in our conversation uh, a month or so ago, Ron, uh, you know, all you have to do is hop lakes, really, to pretty much get in there
0: yeah okay. literally all you have to do, and if you if you look at uh, maps of what the lakes looked like three thousand years ago, the waterways were much more open. the water was considerably higher. And so it was uh, it would be a very simple matter really to land at uh, Nova Scotia, make your way by land across Canada. And from there, Isle Royal from the Canadian coast was only about thirty miles at that time. Now the question. So you arises, could easily do that. You could easily sail across that. Sure. Well, the question was, how would they find out that it
1: was there in the first I was, place? I was actually just going oh, to Oh, sorry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, it's fine. No, great minds think alike. I suppose.
2: <laughs> no, I, I guess that kind of begs the question. You know, it was just some, someone just wandering around, and then they, they happened to find the purest copper ever found ever, and then they just decided. You know, what, what, what do you believe is the sequence of events that kind of led to this?
0: The best that I've been able to find out is it was based on trade. Uh, these this copper was uh, was prized by Native Americans in fact uh, they knew all about this copper and uh, the Antonagin boulder was shown to uh, European visitors by Native Americans who had known about it for generations and so what I think happened is the Native Americans were fashioning jewelry and ornaments and bowls and things of that nature out of this great copper which was not available anywhere else in North America And they traded it from tribe to tribe, and before very long it had made its way, and it has been found all across the United States and all across North America. And my speculation is that one of these visiting uh, groups, either Vikings or Phoenicians or whoever it happened to be, traded for some of this, and when they took it back, everyone was astonished and said, well, where would you get it? And so they said, well, we got it from these guys over, you know, on the big island. And they say that you can just pick it up off the ground. It's just laying there, which was true. It's called flo- float copper. It had been deposited on the surface of the earth by the receding glaciers. And you could literally. Uh, there's a piece of it that was just found, believe it or not, recently in, uh, in 1970 in Lake Superior, and it's now on display in Houghton, Michigan, at the uh, Mineral Museum. Uh, there's a piece of copper they've mounted there that weighs 38,000 pounds, and it's pure my goodness,
1: that that is, and I don't see anything in what you said that
0: isn't completely plausible. You
1: know, and cer- certainly it's it's um, you know, probably uh, not even a secret anymore. I mean, th- there were um, there was gl- apparently global trade from a very early period, if not prehistoric. You know, apparently. So well,
2: that, uh, I think the the weird thing is that most historians don't m- well. So there there's there's outliers in pretty much every every group and, and, and mavericks, I suppose if that's a not not a great word for it, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. That are kinda like, yeah, you know, global trade was a thing. There's a whole bunch of stuff about our ancestors and, you know, people who lived here before us that like, you know, they knew things. They weren't dumb. But no. there's this very this very like modern notion that kind of appeared probably around the time of Darwin that like, oh yeah, you know, we're we're really smart. Our ancestors were real dumb, (laughs) like, you know, we have cars and iPhones, and, (laughs) you know, our ancestors were idiots, they didn't know how to travel around the world, and I think that's still kind of relatively prevalent in in most mainstream archaeology. So, I guess, I was going to ask this the next hour, but since we kind of moved into the subject, um, or the next half hour, I should say, um, we moved into the subject by osmosis, um, how have, have you been been approached by historians or archaeologists or, or anybody and but by, by, by your work or you know your discoveries or anything and how have they reacted?
0: Uh, I have been in fact I'm making a presentation uh, in October at the Ancient Artifact Preservation Society uh, convention based on the discoveries on the stone because I, before we finish I should tell you about what the new speculation is. About what this object actually is, oh, sure. but I have been, and, and I get two, uh, I get two responses because <clears throat> there's one, there's one school of thought that is uh, based on when, when we first started creating the United States, and that was eminent domain, and we created a whole ideology that said that it was our right to take this entire continent, and mm-hmm. that was, and this is some people don't like this statement, but that was based on. Establishing that the, all the indigenous peoples here were just savages, and they would had no culture, and so it was perfectly all right to just wipe them out. That's bluntly put, and it's you know it's not entirely true, but that's one side. On the other side, and so beca- anything that that went against that school of thought was suppressed. Mm. So there was no no you know the culture and the art and the religion and all that was, um, you know, suppressed. And the, then of course if it was pre Columbus they call it pre-columbian it couldn't have had anything to do with North America but uh, the Vikings had obviously had gotten here we all know that that's been proven and a lot of people said well how could you know people from Africa or ancient uh, Scotland or Denmark have gotten all the way across here but there are two ways to get here that are uh, remarkably simple in fact a guy recently did it in a bathtub oh the, that's right yeah yeah there's, what? A, there's if you look at a map of the of the Atlantic Ocean, from the bulge of africa to brazil that distance is shorter than the distance from the eastern end of the mediterranean sea to the western end of the mediterranean sea i never so realized it's that it's not some and there's a river there the, the gulf, there's a stream there's a current in the ocean that goes from that bulge of africa and drops you at brazil and then if you work your way north there's another river you know the gulf stream and then there's the other stream that goes across the northern part that takes you back over. So you can, if you know a little bit about uh, guiding yourself by the stars and sailing, which obviously they did because they were sailing on the Mediterranean Sea. Everybody knows this. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not a big, and the Mediterranean Sea is much more dangerous than the southern Atlantic because, of, you know, the, the storms are fantastic. Yeah. If you know a little bit about the stars and a little bit about the fact that the water is moving under you, it, it would be relatively simple to do, and so to make believe that no one ever got here, uh, it, it's, you know, I mean, the Azores and then the Canaries, and then on over to uh, uh, Cuba or across the top, you know, going from uh, England to uh, Ireland or up to uh, Iceland, Greenland, Svalbard, you know, it's these are just little short hops. Mm-hmm. And that's true. So it's, it's perfectly, the technology was, was perfectly uh, available and, I even have a, I don't know if I'll we'll have a chance to get into it, but I always worked out a theory about how uh, canoes were used to move the copper from where the mines were to the coasts so that uh, sea-going vessels never had to make it to the Great Lakes. That was always been one of the problems is no seagoing vessels have ever been found sunk in the Great Lakes. Well, they never had to get here because you could move the copper. This give you an idea, a cube of copper, this copper that's pure that weighs that is a, a 12 inches on a side, a foot cube. Mm-hmm. weighs 580 pounds so four of those is a ton Fair, fairly easy to move a whole bunch of it and what they did is they hammered it into shapes that were called ox hides that were easy to carry on your shoulder and they get them down to about 100 pounds a piece and they could be stacked they've actually been found in ships in, sunk in the Mediterranean where they were being used for ballast Well, ah. Well let's uh um, yeah, so the, the the evidence is all over the place on that and we can connect all this to the MacIntosh stone. It's a little bit of a stretch but it's not uh, as much of a stretch as people might think. Seemingly
1: so, yeah seemingly so. Let's go to some listener questions uh, Ron this is uh, we have um uh I believe or not, a large listenership in uh, Mexico and the South America and we have a very faithful listener Peter from Bogota Colombia uh who sent in a few questions here. Um uh, Please ask Ron uh, Ben. I'll, please ask Ben to read the question. Sure, <laughs> okay.
2: that's that's the first. Easy part for of the you question. To,
1: easy for you to say.
2: Yeah. <laughs> can, first question: Can Ben read the question? Alrighty. <laughs> so so uh, Peter writes uh, first the first question. So Barbara DeLong suggested uh, you take the stone to a psych- or you took the stone to a psychic and got a psycho- psychometric psych- psychometry reading. Uh, did you investigate that?
0: Uh, I re- yes, that was a suggestion, and in fact, that is going to happen at the Ancient Artifact Preservation Society. There are going to be a couple of people there uh, who can do that. So uh, that's that's the first weekend in October is when I'll be there making this presentation, and we're going to try and have those readings done. Okay. So um,
2: before we move on to the next question, that that's basically like... Um like like reading reading the stone in, in a way like trying to determine I- explain explain the process. What, what is psychometry?
0: Well, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert on that subject, but my understanding is that uh, these people who are sensitive mediums in that area can read this stone and they can pick up uh, information about when it was carved, what was going on, where it's actually from. Which would be—that's the one thing we do not know—is where this actually came from. So it's, uh, the, i always uh, compare it to people who are able to use crystals to get information, that kind of thing. Well, we
1: actually—I uh, had a little bit of experience with that number of years ago. Uh, you weren't even a glint in my eye at the time, Ben. <coughs> we had a uh, woman who was um, very good at doing psychometry, and she would uh, hold uh, a stone in her hands. And be able, and I, I, different psychometrists, if you will, will do it in different ways, but uh, in her case, she could tell um, about the, all the people who were associated with with it uh, where you know pretty much where it had been found because there, w- there had been some carvings on it, and it seemed to be um, uh, nothing too exciting but came from an an area where Native Americans would make uh, projectile points, uh, yeah. otherwise known as arrowheads, and they would um, You know, use this for carving. So there wasn't anything, uh, you know, wildly fascinating about it. But it was was interesting that she could she could do that. So if if that's legitimate, that's pretty much how that worked. So
0: yeah, and I don't I don't see any reason to suggest that it's not legitimate. I mean, there's a Mm. lot of things that we don't know. In fact, I'm sitting in a. I think I let you know I'm sitting in an inn that's haunted right now. Mm. So uh, the um, and there's a group here also called You Prepare Normal who are supposed to look at the stone from a psychometric point of view for me before I go to this conference in October. So that is definitely an area that we're pursuing because I, I know that there are people who can pick up a great deal of information by holding these objects and, you know, they, by doing these readings.
1: Yeah, and we'd love to find out uh, how that goes, Ron. When Absolutely, yeah, let's plan sure. to do that, sure. Great, right, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch on that. Okay, um, so, so we have question. another question, yeah?
2: Yes, so this, the next question that Peter writes is, have you done any lab tests on the stone?
0: We've only done minimal lab tests. Uh, here's the thing, and that's a really good question. Here's the thing with this stone. For many years, I've taken it to people, I've shown it to people, and it was so complicated, and there was so little information about what these carvings were because they're very difficult to interpret, that no one wanted to really take the time with it. I mean, it's not sexy. you know. It's not a, it's not a, a Viking sword. And it's not uh, the Templars, and it's not Oak Island. But the new discoveries that I have made, when they see these, and no one's even seen the new discoveries I'm going to present in October. I'll be glad to tell you guys about them. Mm. Uh, When they see this, it's going to completely change people's attitude about this object because now they're going to see, wait a minute, there's real information on this. Now we need to take this a little more seriously and find out what we've got here. So I'm I'm pretty sure that... uh, In about three weeks here, we're going to have a whole different attitude toward this object. Ooh, cool. Hmm.
2: So, next question from Peter, which uh, is actually a pretty interesting one. Um, Has the owner of the stone, or you, experienced anything mysterious since having contact with it?
0: Uh, I myself have not, other than uh, constant frustration on how hard it has been to find out anything about it. I suppose mm-hmm. that's usually <laughs> <you> know, usually, <laughs> yeah. usually when you have an object like this that's got this kind of carving on it, and I've, I've sent pictures of this around the world. I've had conversations with people on three continents, and everybody just, sh- you know, they, they give me one or two uh, opinions, usually Native American, and go- it goes no further. So it's been extremely difficult to get any information, which is, I you know, that's been my main thing is frustration. Charlie, uh, you know, he... Everybody who is uh, works at this inn that I'm in, that, and that's where the Macintosh Stone is, by the way. I can give you guys the number later if you want to talk to the owner or if you want to come here and see it. Mm. Uh, it mm. still exists. It's here. That You can just walk in and they'll show it to you. Um, bring a magnifying glass. Okay. Uh, th- you know, No one has said anything that uh, the, the things that happen in this inn are directly connected to this stone because the things that have been happening here have been happening for uh, over 150 years.
2: Well, that's okay. fair. Okay, um, so, so
0: the final cle- qu- excellent question, though. excellent question.
2: Oh yeah, no Peter Peter is usually on point. <laughs> uh, we like should that, make him a honorary. I like, yeah, I like
0: this guy. I like this guy. Yeah, we so should make him
1: honorary guest co-host.
2: Pretty much, he basically is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in so he his final question is: in your book, oddities and rarities, what other unexplained anomalies do you discuss?
0: Oh, that's that's really uh, good. There's a couple of different things. Uh, and a point about the uh, oddities and rarities book, when I write about oddities and rarities or par- paranormal things, one of the criteria that it has to meet is I have to be able to see it with my own eyes. All right? I, don't, I don't write about, oh, there's a ghost light in, in a lighthouse somewhere. I don't do that. I go and find things like this stone, which I heard about, and then I track them down. So some of the other things that I talk about in that book, uh, there are some pyramids on the Antonagan River, that uh, have never been explained. We've got that. We've got uh, the glowing tombstones in um, uh, Everett, Michigan. And again, now these are, this is a graveyard where from time to time people report that the gravestones are glowing. Well, usually the very first thing I do when I hear something about something like that is I go to try to see it myself. I've been there two or three times, have not seen it. I did get stuck in a ditch there, and had to ask the graveyard guard to help me get out of the ditch. That's fair. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that was hilarious. But uh, <laughs> but the the point about the that uh, anomaly is that those graveyard stones have been reported to be glowing since 1824, hmm. which is way before we had cars on the road. Way before we had mercury lights. You know, it's not one of the it's not one of these reflection things. Okay. So, so there's that. I also talk about the uh, Sand Petroglyphs, which is a giant uh, uh, set of carvings uh, in sandstone in the Thumb of Michigan, and uh, you know this is uh, about half an acre. It's the only uh, verified petroglyphs in Michigan, although we have found some others. There are in an upcoming edition of this book. There are three huge stone circles in the forest in the upper peninsula of michigan when i say huge i mean a hundred feet across and uh... there are three of them right in a row not, it's not like Stonehenge; these are these are almost like uh, a, a circular wall and they're quite deep What the part that's enclosed is quite deep you stand down in them i'm six feet tall and i can't see over the top
1: hmm.
0: and people who live twenty miles away have never heard but i happened to have found out about it many years ago finally was able to get someone to guide me in there and uh, track it down. Uh, and so there, and there, then there are some other objects in uh, small museums around Michigan. All the stuff is real. All of it can be gone and be seen. And usually, you can go and pick it up. There's a tool uh, in Ontonagon uh, that is said to be uh, a tool that was used by Vikings to repair their ships. There's some controversy about that, but it does exist. And there's one just like it in Oslo, Norway. So, okay, we're going to take
1: our bottom of the hour break now. Lots of, <coughs> lots
0: of cool stuff in the book.
1: Indeed. So you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And we're talking, having a fascinating conversation today with Ron Rademacher from Michigan on the Macintosh Stone and more. So stick with us. Did you know that in the 1960s, 92% of Americans listened to local radio every week? What do you think it is now? I bet it's a lot less. Would you believe that it's still 92%? Wait, you mean more people listen to radio than TV? Yes, more people use local radio every week than any other device. I know I listen. I just didn't realize that everyone else does too.
0: 92% of Americans listen every week. You are right now. Thanks. You can
1: depend on us for public service. Owen Radio Local and live at 99.5 FM Okay, we're back behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and our very fascinating guest today, Ron Rademacher. And we're talking about the Macintosh Stone and a number of other things about uh, Michigan that are really fascinating and possible uh, incursions into the area or visitations for commercial reasons by uh, Europeans and who knows who else uh, way, way, way back. All right, so... Ron, uh, let's kind of go back to the foundation of our, of our questions here. Uh, where do you begin when you search for the history of stones like this? I mean, w- w- what's the process?
0: Well, the process uh, is really, you know, the fir- very first thing I recommend, because people want to go and do these things, like I, I'll tell you about the burnt bluffs and the prehistoric painting down those bluffs. Usually when I hear about something, I start doing research on it online, uh, sometimes that doesn't work. You have to go to the town, find the historical society, find somebody who can remember out. it's uh, And it's and I recommend drinking heavily during all <laughs> all of this because it's very it's very frustrating and very and oftentimes you can't find anyone. Now this particular stone, uh, in fact, I'll tell you the breakthroughs how the breakthroughs happened on this. We I was I took this stone to the. Uh, Ancient Artifact Preservation Society. Who they were the ones who had first alerted me to it, and I took it around to each of the, everybody who would take a look at it through their little magnifiers that jewelers use. No one could come up with anything. Then I came back to the Nema Inn, and we were sitting around. I was talking to Charlie, and he's. I was showing him the pictures I'd taken of it, and some people were in the inn saying, "Well, can we look too?" And a lady said, "Well, you know, can you flip that picture over right there?" And I said, well, yeah, I can, I can flip it over, and which I did. And she said, well, that's a man right there. And so we flipped the stone over, and sure enough, there is an image. If, you, if you're looking at the pictures online, the picture you want to look at is force is men, and it says center. And if you look at that picture, you can very clearly see there's a man's uh, hairline, and he's looking to the right, and he's got something in his hands, and he's got um, a, a shield and from that we discovered that what had always been interpreted as a spider was actually another man sitting with his hands in the air. And that was just a coincidence that was just one person happened to be looking at it who was an amateur. And when I had that, when that happened, then I went and had high resolution images taken of this object so we could clearly see what the uh, images are. Another uh, coincidence that took place was it uh, a book called Bronze Age America by Barry Fell? Oh, I knew Barry Fell. Yeah, you knew Barry Fell. Well, yeah. I was looking through his book, and uh, on one of the pages that I have a uh, one of the pictures I have up there is called Fell, and it shows uh, a double hulled ship, and below that uh, a symbol. One looks like a figure eight. And one just looks like a circle, and that's called a buckler or a buckler, and it's got some symbols around it. Well, that symbolism uh combined is interpreted as being thrust upon the waters as for a voyage. Now, if you look at the uh Macintosh stone that's labeled six buckla, and it says boat and buckla, on the left-hand side is below, at the bottom of the left-hand side, we thought that that was a crescent moon, but when you flip it over like this, it's a double-hulled boat. And above it is a... An, a double image that used to be considered maybe a bird head but now people are saying it looks just like the buckla and so when you combine that with the three men on the other side now the interpretation that I'm going to take to AAPS is that what we actually have here is a commemorative stone that was marking a great voyage that was going to take place
1: that is very interesting because I was I was going to lead into that we have <coughs> I was going to ask uh, uh other stones around the world that might be comparable to this and I'm thinking of the one in uh, Rhode Island which is very little known uh here in Rhode Island and it's uh, on the in the, the eastern part of the state <coughs> in the uh one of the uh, upper arms of Narragansett Bay and it's uh, beneath the uh, slopes of uh so-called mount hope which is actually just a hill i mean the highest point in rhode island is only 820 feet above sea level but uh (laughs) it was a uh well known historically as a place where uh, during king Philip's war um some of the natives uh took uh refuge and this sort of thing uh, and uh had uh, dwellings uh but below on the beach uh are a bunch of uh boulders and uh I, I can honestly say, I think, I don't know if Ben knows this, but uh, Ben's older brother, Jonathan, made uh, three major archaeological discoveries before the age of four years old. Because we're running around the state looking for these things we'd heard about, and a lot of them had been affected by a hurricane of 1938, weather, this sort of thing, uh, which actually did move boulders. So th- this particular carving is, reminds me of the stone we've been discussing. Uh, there is a double held, hold, I should say, hulled vessel. Uh, it's generally interpreted to have been Viking because there seems to be some evidence that the Vikings visited here uh, at the same period they were visiting Newfoundland. And so it's, um, I, I just, the similarities were kind of striking and it's, it's carved on a boulder, but it's very small. And uh, it has been studied by archaeologists, things of this kind, and uh, it is agreed that it is quite, uh, it is from that period. I mean, some, somebody just didn't carve it recently. So th- that struck me as uh, rather similar to the uh, the ship uh, on on the stone in Michigan.
0: And, and I'll give you two more that, that will tie this together. Uh, I have another picture that's running on the slideshow, and you guys probably have it there. It's called Westford Four. Yes. And this is a this is a line drawing of the Westford Knight in Westford, Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. it's a carving on a stone there, and it's been very controversial, and people look at his sword, and people look at his uh, his head, you know, trying to figure out if it's real or anything. When I saw, and I didn't know anything about it, because I don't pay attention to anything outside of Michigan, but I happened to be trapped in a snowstorm and was watching the History <laughs> Channel, and yeah. this image came up, and if you look at his shield, the, there's a double-hulled ship on his shield, and above it is a buckla, is the, the the figure eight circle, with the line through it. It's almost identical mm-hmm. to the what's on the stone and what's on Barry Fell's book. So we have three different objects from three different locations, from three different time periods, all with the similar uh, symbolism on them, all having to do with a voyage across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this is all a coincidence. It's a it's a fantastically astronomical coincidence.
1: No, it's very true. Um, c- the commemorative um, explanation makes a great deal of sense.
0: Well, but I'm going to give you one more. I'll okay. give you one more, c- just so because c- people are going to want it. This is the if you take a look at the picture that is labeled Men Three. Now it's in gray, and the reason it's gray is okay, because this you is say, one. Can you put
1: that back on the screen, man? Please.
0: Yeah. Yeah, go. men three, so it's turned gray. Well that's a result of the high resolution photography process. The stone is actually brown. But what we have here in the center is the guy with that we I showed the close up of. That's the man there. He's kneeling and the middle part of that is his shield. If you look to the right, we used to think that was a spider, but now we can see that his there's a man with his forearms raised and his his legs are down, he's in a sitting position almost in supplication or in blessing. And you can't see it very well, but the extreme left cartouche is actually another human being, uh, kneeling behind the center figure. Now, none of these people, none of these images appears to be Native American or Mediterranean. They look very much, uh, European. And so, it, with this and the other side being the buckler and the ship, I think what this object is, was, it was carved to commemorate a voyage, but I think also, that it's a passport. Hmm. I think that this was granted by a monarch or whoever the powers would be who, who sponsored this uh, this voyage. And you're going to do a voyage across the ocean, you're going to be gone for a couple of years, so you need supplies, you need this, you need that. And since people were illiterate, they could be, the leader of the uh, expedition could be supplied with an object like this. And when he took it to a merchant, that merchant knew that if he supplied the supplies the man needed, he would be paid by the crown. Hmm. So that's just, you know, that okay. it's, it's been, this has been done. These kinds of things were used as passports or as letters of credit. Uh, and then that would explain why, because we still don't know, but it would explain how it made its way all the way across and was found on the Keweenaw Peninsula, because it would have gone with the Voyagers. So it was like dropping one's wallet. It's like dropping one's wallet. <laughs> right. Exactly. Or so in, in this day and age, you dropped your iPhone. You know, huh. you can, you, all your apps are laying there on the on the Qunau uh, Peninsula. Uh, what a disaster that is! When I, <laughs> yeah. So, is
2: there is there any idea as to to what time period this could have come from?
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and anything more um, sort of uh, because if it's targeted than, than what we've mentioned, yeah, yeah. If,
2: it was, if it was European um, writing with images, especially it doesn't it doesn't look medieval. It looks like pre Dark Ages almost.
0: Almost, and if you, well, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things about this. Well, if you've ever watched the movie called uh, Barry Lyndon, uh, it was by Stanley Kubrick. It had, uh, this is, and it was about uh, an Irish guy who got in all kinds of trouble, and it shows him going to an inn, and a number of different places he goes to, and the signs outside of these businesses that ex- tell you what the business is have no writing on them. They're just symbols. Mm. So mm. people were illiterate. So, you know, symbolism was really, really important. But one of the anomalies about this stone is, if you look at the pictures, you'll see there's a kind of a white line running around the edge. And that white vein, you can just see it on a couple of them, that white vein for sacred objects was a very, very important uh, feature. So if someone was creating an object that was going to be a sacred amulet or a, a charm or a blessing stone, they would look for a stone to carve it on that had this white vein going through it. And that is a, that is universal. That's, uh, I've talked with people from, uh, who are experts from South America, people who are experts on North America, people who are experts on the Middle East, Mediterranean. They all agree that when you have this white vein going through an object like this, it was most certainly involved with uh, religious symbolism in some way. Of course, if it is, Medi- if it's European, then the church would have had something to do with uh, with blessing it, but again, uh, no one really knows. Of course, this hasn't had very good uh, research done.
1: Mm. Let's go back to where this was found, Ron, um, by Mr. McIntosh. Uh, I, as as you know, the, the uh, location of um, an object when it's found uh, can have uh, profound uh, implications for, I suppose, where it came from and mm. its origin. Uh, was this found? Can you give us a, Can you give us a picture of, of the area where this was found? Was it f- found li- apparently lying right on top of the ground? Uh, what was it? Had it been in a water course? Had it been moved? Do you think by water? Um, is it an area where people frequent um, the, the vicinities vicinity, as in a trail or hunters or things of that kind? Uh, natives might have done that. Was it a projectile point manufacturing p- place or you know what, what, what were the uh, what, what was the context? Uh, of, of the actual
0: location. This is an absolutely brilliant question. I must—I got to compliment you. This is a great question. Well, thank you it, very much. <laughs> oh, this is no, this is brilliant because. Tell your mother uh, that, you, you, that
1: Ron said that, will you,
0: Ben? Yeah, yeah, oh, yep. yeah, yeah, Ben. Make sure you write that down. Okay. Yeah. Uh, something you'll hear every day. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Is it? <laughs> <that> every day? <laughs> uh, if you if you get a map of uh, of Michigan and you look at the Upper Peninsula, you'll see the Keweenaw Peninsula sticks way out. Into Lake Superior, and above it is uh, Isle Royal and above that is Canada. Now, where this object was found was the the tippy tippy point of that peninsula, and to get there today is extremely difficult. If you, I mean, you have to go to Copper Harbor, and then you've got to get an ORV, uh, you know, four-wheel drive thing, and you've got 30 miles of just treacherous mountainous cliffs and old trails to get through to get to where this uh, object was found. And the reason that Charlie was out there is because Charlie does that. He's a man who goes and marks timber for the timber companies. Hmm. And so when he's waiting for them to catch up with him, he goes and and walks along the shore looking for things like this. And so the very, very, in fact, this spot is so remote that this is where uh, Michigan at one time had a rocket Program and that's where the launching pad <laughs> really is. the ra- launch pad is still there. Yeah, you can Google up Michigan uh, Keweenaw launch pad and there's pictures of the pad is still there. Hmm. And so this was found on the very tip, and it was found about 50 feet above the existing water line. Now, if you looked at it. Uh, you can see that it's very heavily worn so the question about was it in a waterway well it was probably has been wave beaten and the fact that it wasn't worn completely smooth is amazing now how why would someone drop it there how could that have happened well here's how it could happen this is the place where you would stop if you were on a voyage if you were making a voyage from the Sioux Locks and the St. Lawrence Seaway to the Keweenaw Peninsula or Isle Royale you would stop in this spot because it's the most convenient place to stop. There's fresh water nearby. There would be game nearby. There's timber there. You would stop there. You, uh, If you went to further west and went down the outside of that peninsula, you could reach the Antanagan River. If you go up the Antanagan River a few miles, in two portages, you could be on the Mississippi River. If you went the other way, toward Whitefish Bay, which is only it's over by Munising, which is where the pictured rocks are now. That's one of the famous uh, places people go here, the the pictured rocks. At the time that this stone would have been dropped, there was actually a waterway that went through the Upper Peninsula all the way to Lake Michigan. Very navigable. It was formed by a, a glacial burst as the glaciers were receding. Well documented that it was there. You could have taken anything through there, or you could have come, so you could come down the St. Lawrence Seaway into Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, into Lake Huron, come up to Lake Michigan, go along the southern edge of Lake Superior and go up that waterway, and, or the southern, the northern edge of Lake Michigan, go up that waterway and be in Lake Superior where this copper was without ever getting off the water. Wow. So that, that, so it, this would have been a place where you would have stopped and staged because if you were going to Isle Royal from where this was found, it's now 50 miles to Isle Royal, And so this is a place where you would have paused uh, on your voyage if you needed to get timber for your supplies, if you needed to get fish, you know, whatever, the if you had to do ship repairs, this is a place that's very likely that you would have stopped. And some little kid was playing with his dad's uh, sacred amulet passport. He was skipping stones and dropped it, and they couldn't find it. So I know that kid got tanned. Very plausible. So- <laughs> So that's so that's the, the location of it and how it could have gotten there. Okay, uh, you know it, it wasn't picked up by some. No one was there randomly. If whoever was there was going somewhere with a purpose, because it's one of the most remote places, and it's a place that's only accessible, by the way, gentlemen, by water, uh, about ninety days of the year. Wow. wow. Because uh, winter, you know, is six months, seven months long in that location, and spring and autumn. I mean that the the saying is get your boat off the water in October. All right. So uh, and don't put it in until June. So there's only about a 90 day period where someone would have been doing this. So it's not a place you would have just gone uh, just for the fun of it.
2: So here's a quick question for you, uh, or maybe it's not quick. Um, if if there was a some sort of some like a like an infra- like a traveler infrastructure, right? So. There probably would have been, like, you know, maybe small ports along the way, because it seems like this would have been a large operation to kind of go back and forth, having a mining facility and whatnot. Is there any sort of evidence of, uh, you know, buildings left, left behind, any sort of structures, anything like that? Uh, a couple
0: of things. There, are no, there were no permanent structures on Isle Royale, which has always been a puzzle, but I, I've solved that one uh, for people because you wouldn't have had to build anything there since you're only going to be out there for about 60 days anyway. You just take your teepee with you no, That's fair and fair. bring it off when you take it off. But there are, yeah, for instance, uh, Calumet and Houghton is halfway down the Keweenaw Peninsula, and when that uh, harbor was being created by Europeans, there was a pit discovered in that uh, harbor that contained 20,000 tons of copper someone had moved it there and it was there for transshipment and this this copper trade that was taking place suddenly stopped about 1200 BC it, it the people just put the tools down and never came back there was a piece of copper in one of these pit mines sitting on a cradle of oak that was being raised up out and the operation was never completed and from that cradle of oak, that's what they carbon dated to determine how, when it had been put in there, and that was, uh, you know, uh, two thousand BC when that was going on. So the, the the one of the puzzles has always been, well, where did you know where did the copper go? But how did they get it out of there? You know, where are all the dwellings? Where are the shipwrecks? You know, if you had big ocean going ships in, in Lake Superior, Lake Superior sinks ships all the time, mm. Mm. and so where are the shipwrecks? Well, they're in. Uh, in uh, Watersmeet, there's a casino. It's a place called Lac Vaudesire, and there's a canoe on display in that uh, casino that was found uh, in Watersmeet in 1950. Very briefly, this canoe is 32 and a half feet, 32 and a half feet long, three and a half feet wide. It's 22 inches deep, and its sides are an inch and a half thick. So I sent the dimensions of this thing to a buddy of mine who's an engineer and I said, can you do the displacement math for me on this? I have the math if anybody wants to see it. We're going to publish it later in October. Uh, and I don't really understand, you know, Archimedes, you know, splashing around in the bathtub and it's the, the, you know, that's displacement. And I wanted to know how much cargo could this canoe carry with four or six paddlers in it and their equipment? And he came back and he said it could carry two tons. So the next thing was if I put an outrigger on it, could I paddle it from the Keweenaw Peninsula to Isle Royal? And he said easily. You'd have about a ten hour day. So if you take those four cubes of copper I described earlier, you could put four of those in this canoe and you'd have a ton of copper, which you could move from Isle Royale to the Keweenaw Peninsula and then or just take it over to Canada Canada and drop it off there or take it down to the Antanagan River and portage to the uh Mississippi River and down to Poverty Point where there were smelting spots, where they were smelting copper. And if you had a hundred of these canoes and they only made the trip twice each summer, that would be 200 tons of copper that we moved every summer. And that's just two trips per canoe with only a hundred. So why wouldn't they have 400? So yeah. you, would, you could take these down in stages out of here, get them down to Lake Huron, get them down to up the St. Lawrence Seaway, and the ships coming over from Europe would only have to stop there and could unload the copper there. So you would never have to have a huge city built here. You would never have to have ocean-going vessels get into the Great Lakes uh, because you could do it all. And they have today in Canada, they have a, a big race called Rabaska. And it is cargo canoes that are only 26 feet long. And these crews are nine people, and they race these things on the river. So we actually have one of these canoes that's prehistoric. Uh, that's verified that it's prehistoric. So this whole thing could have been done. And then when winter's coming, you would just load up your teepee, drop your tools, because they were stolen tools, leave them there, come home, spend the winter with the family, and then you would go back and do you know your 90 days of labor. Uh, in the the short summer out there in Lake Superior. That's one way it could easily have been done without having the necessity of of a lot of Europeans tramping around uh, in this part. And again, they wouldn't have to do it. You could easily do it by just taking everything over to Canada and taking it right across to Nova Scotia and transshipping it across from there. Very
1: likely. Well, Ron, uh, we're almost out of time here. Uh, Oh no! Oh no! I'm having too much fun. I know. So are we. (laughs) Uh, But uh, take a moment to uh, tell people again uh, where they can find out more about you, your books, your website, and where they can find out more about the stone, or where they can even see it.
0: Yeah, that's. Thank you. Uh, MichiganBackroads.com. MichiganBackroads.com. Go there, and uh, if you want to get information about the stone. Uh, just click on the oddities section, or click on. The, I have a map of Michigan. On every page, just click on the Upper Peninsula, and you can just look for Nema or Macintosh Stone. If you want to come and see the stone, uh, Nema is a small town near Escanaba. Uh, you can call and um, you know let them know, hey, I want to stay in this haunted place. We do have rooms here, and you can come. And if you let us know you're coming, we'll make sure the stone is available for you to look at. Charlie keeps it here, wrapped up in a nice sock. So it doesn't get damaged. Yeah, we use. In fact, I think it uses double socks on it. That's fair. Yeah. Very good. And, and so, and and if you go to michiganbackrows. dot com and you want to contact me, it says contact Ron. My contact information is there. My email is there. I answer all of my emails. I'll be glad to send people pictures, whatever information they want about this. And if you want to get my books, you know, special prices on the books. Just click on books, and it'll take you right to the shopping uh, cart.
1: Outstanding. Well, thank you very much, Ron. A fascinating show, and we'll be in touch off the air.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Good talking to everybody. And that guy, Peter, is that his name? Thank you for the great questions. Very
1: good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, folks, let's get to our announcements. Uh, my book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God, is now in stores. It's available at all our fall events. Uh, the official release will take place with our good friends at the Toadstool Bookshop in Keene, New Hampshire, next Saturday, September 21st, beginning at 2 p.m. It's a beautiful drive up there, and it's a great store, so if you can come up, come up or down or wherever you happen to be in whichever way shape or form Mm. so many thanks to Deb Horan and the uh, Book
2: Lovers Gourmet Bookshop in Webster, Mass where my dad had a great time yesterday at the first real book event uh, for Dancing Past the Graveyard it was a great group of people and a lovely venue
1: Uh, this Thursday September 19th uh, I'll be at the Cumberland Public Library and yeah, Ben is uh, welcome to make cameos on any of these things too. Uh, the Cumberland Public Library, 1464 Diamond Hill Road, Cumberland, Rhode Island, for a presentation and book signing for Dancing Past the Graveyard. I guess that's the second pre-event. Uh, starting at 6.30pm, uh, call 401-333-2552 for more information or visit the library website. <clears throat> Uh, as mentioned, uh, this coming Saturday, September 22nd, the official release uh, will take place uh, again at the Toadstool Bookshop. And uh, the information there is uh, it's going to be at 2 p.m. Uh, you can call 603-352-8815 for more information.
2: There are lots of other events after that, uh, but especially the Greater New England UFO Conference that's slated for Columbus Day weekend, that's October 4th and 5th, at the uh, City Hall in Leominster, Massachusetts. Along with ourselves, speakers will include uh, Calvin Parker, eyewitness to the Pascagoula UFO incident in 1973, uh, Roxy's Wicker, William J. Hall, Jimmy Pentanito, Ale- uh, Alexander Petikoff, Dave McCullough, Ronnie LeBlanc. Uh, Cheryl Costa uh, Mike Stevens and Dennis Stone once again the Friday section of the event will be Bigfoot Night so you can get our books including Behind the Paranormal Everything You Know Is Wrong uh, Behind the Paranormal 2 Bigfoot Mothman Monsters You've Never Heard Of uh, and now Dancing Past the Graveyard Poltergeist, Parasites Parallel Worlds and God uh, they're available from online retailers and in some stores but for autographed copies please visit the
1: online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com once the site is back online oh yeah well this, uh, the site is on online behind the dot as a matter of fact uh the only thing we're we're having really good luck with is uh putting the video feeds of these shows uh online because it, it They are not resident on our site. They're right here from the radio station, from WON, and uh, it takes you to their site where you can see them. So there's been no uh, problem with those. However, we uh, have been uh, having issues with uh, uploading the actual uh, MP3s of the show audios, and we do suggest that people uh, go to a number, and there are links on our site to this. There are any number of podcast sites uh, that that all the major ones (coughs) carry uh, the recordings of the previous shows—they're uh, back to 2011 at this point, including the CBS shows—and we're going to get them all back to 2008 as soon as we can. So there'll be uh, hundreds and hundreds of shows for you to listen to. Baby steps. <laughs> yes. So there are
2: links to several charities uh, we've adopted on the show, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, uh, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero. And next week we have. Uh, On September 22nd, we'll bring you an open-line show to answer your questions on many paranormal subjects, assisted by our favorite guest co-host, Shane
1: Searway. And we leave you this afternoon with an incisive (coughs) thought from American author Ralph Waldo Emerson. Quote, Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Unquote. (laughs) I like that. Uh, Anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And
2: I'm Ben Eno, and we still have a few seconds uh, before before the the whatever well, who's your favorite
1: uh, we always end with a quote uh, Einstein or Emerson which, uh, who's your favorite
2: I mean I did go to Emerson College so I'm a little bit biased uh, uh, but we're it's not named after
1: that Emerson and but we're related Emerson. to
2: Emerson too so we might, might as well go with who we're related with so right. anyway uh, you are I'm Paul Eno and I'm Ben Eno and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey and we shall see you behind the paranormal
0: Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now.